always brings perfection when we hear it because it's perfect. We give you thanks this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. God, amen? Amen. It's good to be back down in the lower gym or the multi-purpose room, and it's uh, always a delight to simply be in the house of God with the children of God to celebrate together. Church family, look at your neighbor and say, man, it's just great to be with you. And if appropriate, say, woman, it's just great to be with you. Welcome home, uh, Adam and Stella Neal, <laughs> all the way from Italy. You guys, you guys received the award for traveling to church this Sunday from the longest distance. That's great. Good to have you guys with us. I also want to welcome for the very first time in church service this morning, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Wesley Ransom. So will you guys stand? Come on. <laughs> Thank you. Woo. Yeah. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Uh, yeah, it's just good to be kind of just home, so to speak. And uh, as Matt said, if you're with us for the very first time, welcome home, and uh, we're glad you're with us. And uh, this morning as we dive into the Word of God, as we, uh, or just before we dive into the Word of God, we have one more thing we're going to do, but um, I, am, I cannot tell you how excited I am to be studying the book of Genesis. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in just a moment. But before we go into that, starting this week, Kelsey is on her way to Australia. And she's going to be in a leadership program for about three years. Kelsey, will you stand? And we're going to pray for her. She's going, and she's this year, she's going to be spending some time alone out in the proverbial bush. And so we are, she's, she's seeking God. She's doing all kinds of just leadership development. And so we want to just pray for her as a church. So I'm going to invite you just right now where you're at. And if there's a couple of ladies, can I get some of the young ladies to come over and uh, just lay hands on Kelsey? You're a young lady. You just come on over and pray. Don't, don't look for like, oh, am I a leader? If you're a young lady, you just come pray. That's awesome. All right. We're going to give a moment and let some of these gals make their way over. And then, church, we're just going to pray together. And we're going to believe God for his work in Kelsey's life and all the other young ladies that are going to be a part. Father, we just pray for Kelsey. And we ask God in the name of Jesus that as she goes Australia, this leadership development where she'll she'll be with her grandmother, but she'll be away. And there's there's just going to be times of Lord where she's alone with you, and you are going to be uh, instructing her. You're going to be building her up in her faith. You're going to be inspiring her. You're going to be doing so many things. Lord, we are asking your anointing. We're asking your blessing. We're asking that you go before her, make rough places smooth. Father, that you would take her by the hand, and as she is led out into the wilderness. Father, we pray that you would just strengthen her through and through, and that, Father, she would be more than an overcomer in every area, and that she would be filled with wisdom, she would be filled with direction, vision, and insight. We just commit this time, we ask your blessing on all the young ladies that are going to be in this leadership time of three weeks. Be glorified, God. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said a strong, amen, amen, praise the Lord. So be sure to uh, write Kelsey's name down and uh, be praying with her and for her while she's away. So let me come back to just my personal testimony associated with the study of the book of Genesis. I was 19 years old when I committed my life to Christ, and um, for those of you who know me a little bit maybe more than others, you would know that I am kind of a uh, avid science buff. I, uh, I absolutely thrive on reading science journals. And uh, that's, that might seem kind of weird, but uh, it's where I'm at. And I absolutely love, love, love this stuff. And uh, early on, I started reading the book of Genesis and got connected with some science folks. And just very, very strengthening for me to know why I believe what I believe. And we're going to discover in our study of the book of Genesis so many amazing things. I hope today that I, on one hand, overload you with information. So today is going to be like this information dump. It's just going to be blah. And you're going to receive, you're going to go, wow. But more than anything, what I hope is it whets 
your whistle. It kind of whets you in terms of just your appetite and your desire for more of truth, more of the Word of God and that truth contained within the Word. And so, on a personal level, I am just excited that we get to endeavoring here. What I hope today that we leave with is threefold, three things. Number one, that the Scriptures are inspired by God. They are God-breathed. The 66 books written over a span of nearly 2,000 years by some 40 different authors. My prayer is that today we would recognize this integrated message of God's redemption in the midst from Genesis through Revelation, even though we won't touch on that in its entirety, we're just going to touch on a little hair of that, um, the inspiration of the Scriptures. Secondly, my prayer is that we would also have this recognition that there is a wealth, a wealth, a vat, a massive vault of information contained within the context of just the book of beginnings in Genesis, let alone the entirety of Scripture. This vast amount of information that we may have only very little information about that would actually cause you to hunger and thirst to know the Lord and to know the Word of God more that would almost consume you with this insatiable desire I must study the Word of God. I must study it. I must learn God's Word. And then finally, God is. God is. God is. And He is revealing Himself. Constantly, consistently, and absolutely lovingly. We have a loving Heavenly Father. We have a loving Savior. And we have a loving Spirit who dwells in the hearts of all believers. So, those three things. So, let's dive in. Today, we're going to cover Genesis 1-1. That's as far as we'll get it. Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Say that with me. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I wrote in my notes, we're embarking into an exploration of the book of beginnings. In the original Hebrew, the title of Genesis is Bereshit. Bereshit. And it has tremendous implications. It simply means in beginnings. This is an appropriate title for the book of beginnings, if you will. Our English version really follows the Greek translation, which is a different uh, Hebrew word. The Hebrew word uh, is toldot, which simply means generations. And generations would be an appropriate title as well, as we'll see later in the actual structure of how the book of Genesis is written. It is written in 11 sections. Each of those sequential sections begins with the statement, these are the generations of. So, regarding origins, it is a book of beginnings. And I'm going to just share a handful of beginnings, if you will. But before I get to those beginnings, there really comes down to two worldviews that are represented in the book of Genesis. Two worldviews. And every existing worldview stems from one of these two worldviews. And the simplicity of that is either A, a person believes that all matter that we see is eternal, or it had a beginning and consequently a beginning-er. There was a designer who created. And so either a person believes in a naturalistic view, there is no beginning, matter is eternal, or 
there is an eternal God that made all matter. Does that make sense? And from those two worldviews, every other worldview stems. And so a person, as we endeavor into the book of Genesis, we reconcile. We, we ought to reconcile where we are. And those that you know, I, I had a conversation with, a, uh, with Mike Clouser in the back, and it was just a, a quick conversation, and the term atheist came up. And if you've been with us in our study on Sunday nights when uh, John Roberts was teaching from that apologetic view, we were coming from this presuppositional view, and we looked at what other people believe and what the Bible teaches. And atheism has at its core no God. Faith, there is a God. There's only two options. Matters eternal, or an eternal God made it all. And from that, everything flows. And so, when we come to that realization, it really will have some implication. And so, the book of Genesis should be very foundational in how we believe and what we believe. And when we communicate our faith to people. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense with you. Okay. So, uh, let's dive in to at least... Out of those two worldviews, here are four simple questions that come into play. Who am I? Who am I? Who are we? Where did we come from? Why am I here? Why am I here? Why are you here? Why are we here? The fourth question is where are we going? Where are we going? More importantly, in relationship to mortality, where am I going after I die? That's an, that's an important question. And so those worldviews really stimulate those questions. On countless fields of study find their origin in the book of Genesis. I was with Matthew this last week and we were sitting in the office and we were on the whiteboard and we just began to list all of these fields of study that are, uh, that really find their origin in the book of Genesis. Theology, the study of God. Anthropology, the study of man. Cosmology, the study of the cosmos. I would just make a quick note and a personal note that uh, with the study of the cosmos and all that we can see and the stars and the galaxies, etc., incidentally, I believe that that is not even a science at all. It is actually a field of thought and a field of study or endeavor in that nothing that we see in the cosmos can we apply any empirical science to because it's non-observable and we can't create experiments to repeat uh, what we observe. So all that being said... The study of cosmogony, that is the study of the origin of stuff. And imp absolutely magnanimous in all of that is simply where did life come from? Where did life come from? From non-replicating elements? It's not a sufficient initial cause. Life came from God himself. All right, biology, the study of life. Angelology, the study of angels. Soteriology, the study of salvation. Uh, Hamartiology, the study of sin or the original sin. Israelology, what is Israel? Who is Israel? What's the plan associated with Israel? Incident, in, incidentally, we've said this before, and several other uh, uh, systematic theologists have noted that in most systematic theology books, you won't even find the study of Israelology. It is a missed portion. And uh, God is not finished with the nation of Israel. Can I get an amen? Amen. He's got a plan. Ecclesiology, that is the study of the church. Missiology, really it's the church and its mission, if you will. Pneumatology, the study of the things of the spirit. Epistemology, knowledge. And certainly genealogy, the study of the generations, if you will, or the ethnos of humanity. And so many, many others, and those are just a handful. Science. Uh, it, it, it's Science simply translated means knowledge. And we find that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
and knowledge. And so knowledge has its origin in the book of Genesis, let alone in the word of God. I, I am absolutely captivated by uh, the laws of science and the laws that govern this universe. I'm very, very particularly uh, interested in the laws of thermodynamics or heat dynamics. Uh, for instance, if you wonder about the beginning and if you were an eternal matter kind of person or you're talking with someone who's eternal matter, just understand that the second law of thermodynamics is really this idea of heat dynamics. And heat, warm bodies always move toward cold bodies. Does that make sense? If you sit on the couch and it's cold outside, you move towards the warm body. <laughs> but what I mean by that is it's this idea of heat, heat transferring. The warm objects begin to uh, uh, raise the temperature of the cold objects. Here's the thing. If we've had an infinite amount of, if we've had an infinite amount of time, the universe would be a constant heat already and a uniform heat. Because all the warm bodies would have warmed all the cold bodies up already. Does that make sense? If there's an infinite amount of time, the heat would have already displaced itself. Are you following with me? In other words, the very nature that our sun is still burning tells us that our sun had to have had a beginning. Because if it had no beginning, it would have already burned up. Are you with me? Does that make sense? infinite, no beginning, it would have already used up all of its fuel. And so the uni the, there would be a uniform temperature across the globe. Okay. Well, I won't get too far into the science. Uh, yeah, I won't get too far into the science. I've got lots of things I want to say, but I won't. Hey, it, it's, it's the origin of prophecy. The Genesis account of creation. Even the early church fathers believed that the seven days of creation were resplendent in prophecy. That they were a timeline that would match up with human history. Even making predictions that within certain thousands of years, some things would transpire. And we're right at that place. We're right in line with those first, second, and third century fathers of the faith were teaching in relationship to the prophetic nature of the seven days of creation. You know that Psalms tells us that one day is as a thousand years, as a thousand years is as one day. Peter repeats, quoting that Psalm, Psalm 90, quotes that. One day is as a thousand years, as a thousand years is as one day. And we would discover that if you did the genealogies that are contained within the Word of God, and there are very intelligent individuals who have taken the time to do that study, guys like Usher and others, they've discovered that Adam would have been created at about 4004 B.C. Well, we're in, if you will, day six, if you do that little computation. The seventh day is the day of rest, and we're told in the book of Revelation that a day of rest is coming, and it will last how long? A thousand years, the millennial reign of Christ, day seven. It's a day that is forthcoming. So you can kind of just see and encapsulate how prophecy is there. Not only that prophetic nature, but in the book of Genesis, in chapter 3, after the fall of man, which we will look at in a couple of weeks, after the fall of man, we have the promise of a coming Messiah. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. You can read it, and we'll get to that at some other time. But there's this promise of a coming Messiah. And you'll discover, and we will, as we navigate through the book of Genesis, our desire is that we will also be able to draw the types and realities of Christ literally on every page. Literally on every page. Psalm 40 reminds us in verse 8 that the volume of the book is written of me. So, like Proverbs says, it is to the glory of God to conceal a matter. It is to the glory of kings to search a matter out. And so our looking for Jesus, if you will, on the pages of Genesis. And we'll discover there are many, many pictures, types, and realities of Christ in his interactions with humanity. All right.
also to note that all major doctrines of our faith have their origin in the book of Genesis. All major doctrine, all major Christian doctrine has its origin in the book of Genesis. I think that's fascinating. The scriptures are inspired, as we're going to look at today, at least very much skipping a stone. One true God, the deity of Christ, the fall of man, salvation, our blessed hope, and right up to and including the millennial reign of Christ. All of these, and there are other major doctrines that are found and have their roots, if you will, right in the book of Genesis. Genesis seems to anticipate all other philosophies that are wrong, all false. For instance, atheism, there is no God. The Word of God presupposes and teaches in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. It absolutely anticipates atheism and annihilates it. Pantheism, God is nature, or all things we see is God. No, pantheism, Genesis says that God is transcendent and he is distinguishable from that which he has created. He is not what he has created. He is distinguishable from that which he has created. So pantheism, it's obliterated. Polytheism, Genesis says there's one God. There's one God. And the beauty is Genesis not only teaches but hints to the triuneness of that God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that in today's uh, looking at verse 1. We'll even see that hint that's there. Um, materialism. Genesis says that matter had a beginning. And materialism, not like I need more stuff. Materialism in that matter is everything. There's a theology, or there's an ology out there, that matter is everything. Matter is eternal. But no, the scripture tells us that God created all things and matter had a beginning. Humanism. Genesis says God, not man, is the ultimate reality. Evolutionism. Genesis says God created. God created. And you look at the unique word in the Hebrew for creation. Fascinating word, bara. Uh, Uniformitarianism. Uh, Everything is by naturalistic process. And that is not what the scripture tells us. Uh, So, Genesis, book of beginnings. Well, let us begin. Uh, Let's look at that key for us in our faith in relationship to the doctrine of the scriptures being inspired first. The scriptures being inspired. Our doctrinal statement would simply be this. The scriptures, both the Old and the New Testaments, are verbally inspired of God, and they are the revelation of God to man, the infallible, authoritative rule of faith and conduct. The Word of God is perfect. Now, Scripture tells us, Paul writing to Timothy, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, verse 17 says, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. A reminder. 1 Thessalonians, Paul writing to the churches in Thessalonica, he says this, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, Because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. The word of God, even the epistles of the New Testament being referenced in this text as the word of God. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21 For prophecy never came by the will of man. Prophecy never came by the will of man. It goes on to say, But holy men of God spoke as they were moved on by the Holy Spirit. Moved on by the Holy Spirit. God spoke, was moved, the men were moved upon, and they wrote those things down as they were so moved. It should be noted that Jesus quoted himself from the book of Genesis countless times. He was perpetually referencing Genesis as authoritative scripture.
authoritative scripture. Not only did he quote from Genesis, but we would have an account where he quoted from the Pentateuch, literally every book of the Pentateuch, all five books of the Torah, Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When Jesus was taken by the Spirit of God out into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan some three times that we have those accounts, every single time he corrected his adversary, he used the Word of God and he spoke from Deuteronomy. He quoted the book of Deuteronomy and it was authoritative. And it was authoritative to the point of victory over temptation, victory over our adversary. There should be a lesson there for all of us. It's the Word of God that has the power for you and I to be more than overcomers. Okay, so at Hillside, when we begin a new study, one of the things that we want to do is we want to go through at least some basics. We call them the hermeneutical truths. We go through who is the author, what was the condition, who's the audience, what is the date and the setting, what are the details associated with its uh, context, if you will. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to look at its authorship uh, and Genesis itself never mentions who its author is. And just so I just want to put that out there. But the writers of Scripture, Jesus himself, and certainly all of the writers both in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, I have some 15 references on page today. I'm not going to give those to you. I don't think they're up on the board. They might be. Uh, if, they, if they end up on the board, that's great. But there's at least seven from the Old Testament that I'm referencing. And the writers of the Old Testament, both from the history as well as from the prophets, all the way up into the New Testament, the disciples of Christ referencing the, uh, the accuracy, if you will, or that uh, Moses is, in fact, the author. Uh, and it's probably most clearly brought out in the account of the two men who were traveling after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. They were traveling to the city of Emmaus. And as they were walking to Emmaus, a traveler joins them, who in fact is the resurrected Jesus Christ, but his ability to, their ability to recognize that it was Jesus was hidden from them. And as they traveled, they asked the question, or he asked the question, what manner of conversation are you having? And they responded, are you the only one in this area that doesn't know what has transpired in these days? And they tell about Jesus, and they said he was a prophet, and they believed him to be the Messiah, and how he had been crucified. And Jesus responded, well, tell me these things. And uh, eventually, he begins, the scripture tells us, he begins with Moses and all of the prophets. And he shows how the Messiah must suffer these things to the point of death and resurrection. That statement he begins with Moses is he begins with the Pentateuch from Genesis all the way through to the very end, Malachi, the prophet, he reveals how Messiah must. And so Jesus affirms that the authorship of the first five books of the Bible is, in fact, Moses. And so we know that Moses is the one. Uh, and recognize this. Moses is probably the only one fit Remember how Moses was brought up. He was brought up in the schools and in the houses of the Egyptian pharaohs. He was well-learned, well-learned, and so God took that and used it for his glory. And note this also, when, when you might question, and there, there's all kinds of uh, human, uh, there's study that would say that there, there was no language or there was no written language back in those days in the 15th century B.C., etc. No written language. That's just flat out not true. Archaeological discoveries would demonstrate that they had written language during those days. And certainly Moses would be one that was fit to do so. Uh, Jesus refers to the law, citing Moses as the writer numerous times. So uh, what is the date and the setting? 
It is interesting that Genesis itself spans more time than any other book. In fact, it spans more time than all of the rest of the books cumulatively. It spans a period of about 2,000 years. And so its setting is, uh, again, some 4,004 B.C. is its beginning. Uh, And I won't go into all of the time associated with what's covered there, but really from creation all the way up, it covers about actually 2,400 years to about 1,800 B.C., if you will. Uh, The setting. The settings are very simple. There are about three different settings. It is the Fertile Crescent, it's Israel, and it is Egypt. So that's, you have three different spots. The Fertile Crescent, you have Israel, and then you also have some time in Egypt. Um, The audience. The book announces that it's to all peoples of the earth. That's uh, in chapter 12 in reference to Abraham, all peoples shall be blessed. So it would be appropriate that the audience is written to all peoples, uh, which would include every one of us sitting in this room. Uh, What's the theme? Well, really, it is God's announcement. It's God's announcement of a Savior, a Savior. Man created, man left to his own devices, falls into sin, and God's plan of redemption and his announcement and then the process wherewith he would do so. And again, we'll seek to uh, reveal Christ. So let me just go through the structure real quick. It's a quick outline, and uh, then we're going to just dive into verse 1 this morning. Uh, And today is Communion Sunday, so we'll conclude with communion. And really, again, what I want you to see is, again, the Scripture being inspired. You're going to see some things as I I get into that first verse uh, that will be resplendent with God's divineness associated with His Word. Uh, So here's the simple structure. Uh, and it's a literary structure. There are 11 parts to the book of Genesis, and each of those 11 parts begins with that phrase, these are the generations of. And so today we're looking at an introduction, if you will. Uh, there will be um, the generations of the heaven and earth, the generations of Adam, the generations of Noah, the sons of Noah, Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. So, someone might say, well, does that mean we're only going to be in Genesis for 11 weeks? No. Our normal study is to do one chapter a week, which would put us uh, one year in the book of Genesis. Uh, We will not be one year in the book of Genesis. I'm estimating that we will likely be in the book of Genesis for about 24 weeks, which is about six months. So, we're going to hunker down. And we're going to cover a lot of detail. That means on Sunday nights we'll be covering roughly two chapters each Sunday night. If there's a Sunday night where we don't have service, we'll be doubling up or tripling up, if you will, uh, on some of those Sundays. So your, your study of the book of Genesis will kind of fill in some of those blanks. Um, it, it should be noted that uh, in our study, in our 11 sections of study, we really are going to find the discovery of God seeking his Messiah. So we're going to go from really the generations of the whole world all the way up through chapter 11, and then we're going to have the focus on the nation of Israel, from the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob will ultimately have his name changed to Israel. He has 12 sons. These become the 12 tribes of Israel, with which out of the tribe of Judah will come forth the Savior, Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so, Uh, Well, let's begin looking at again at Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the Hebrew, Bereshith bara Elohim et ha-shamayim et ha-eretz. It has a beautiful kind of uh, poetic sound. Bereshith, in beginning. In beginning. Before the B, B of Bereshit, there was nothing. Bereshit, in beginning, it is a time statement, a time statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens, Shemayim or Hashemayim, and Eretz, the earth, Hash, Ha-Eretz, 
the earth. I like to I like to say you have a hint of the triunity of our God. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. It's not in the notes and it's not on the board. Romans 1.20, write that down. You'll find that in Romans 1.20, God says that through that which he has created, he is revealing his divine nature, even his Godhead. Through that which he has made, that which he has created, he is revealing his divine nature. In fact, turn in your Bibles with me to Romans 1.20. Romans 1.20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. I want you to let that soak in for a moment. Invisible, clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. In the beginning, the heavens, the earth, time, space, matter. We live in a triune universe, if you will. God, even in his first statement, is revealing the nature of his existence. There's a hint of his triunity. Space, matter, and time. Uh, the word bara is a unique word, created. It's used only of God. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, it's used three times. And it's unique in how it is used. It is used in a order of magnitude of greater complexity. God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning, so you have God made the stuff wherewith he, or he created the stuff out of nothing wherewith he will fashion and make other things. But when it came to the animals, there is the same word bara again. So God didn't God took some stuff, but he created something else when he was making the animals. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm really, really glad that animals have personalities. My dog is better than everybody else's dog. <laughs> My dog's got personality. <laughs> I know everyone wants to say, wait a minute, my dog's got more personality. And your dog might have more personality, but there's relationship. I can have a relationship with my animal. So there's a distinct, I can't have a relationship with my pin oak tree in my yard. Created stuff, living, but it doesn't have a soul. And it seems like, I can't get emphatic, but it seems like when God made the animals, he must have made something new. He created something new, the soul. And the next time bara is used is when he makes man, an order of complexity that is higher in order. And the difference between animals and man is that God has given man the ability to make choice, to have volition. Animals don't. They have natural urges that they simply go fulfill. Man can decide. He can choose whether he will or he won't. Does that make sense? It's an order of complexity. Anyway, I think that's what they're doing there. Um, here's the key. The name Elohim, it's the name of God. It's the name of God. And here's the interesting thing. If, you, if you're familiar with the Hebrew language at all, you would recognize that the I am ending is the noun pluralizing for some of the nouns in the Hebrew language. Like, for instance, uh, heavens, shemayim. 
heavens. It's plural, isn't it? Um, Elohim is plural in terms of its nature. It is a plural noun. However, contextually, in every context it's used in its sentence, it is in its sentence grammatically incorrect. Because the nouns should be synonymous with their verbs in sentence. Just like in English, you wouldn't say, uh, my dog's is going outside. You'd say, hey, your grammar's not right. Well, the same thing goes in the Hebrew. We have a plural noun in singular usage. In other words, one God resplendent in parts. Three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And again here, it's hinting towards the triune nature of the one who is the creator, Elohim. Um, let's just dive into a couple of little thoughts associated with Genesis 1-1. I mentioned uh, that I'm kind of a science guy, and years and years and years ago, I was introduced to someone named Ivan Tannen. Now, I didn't meet him personally, who was already passed away, but he was a late... Uh, he was born in the late 1800s, and he studied all the way up through the early 1900s. He was a linguistic genius, speaking six languages fluently, of which Hebrew and Koine Greek were two of those languages. He's also a mathematician and a mathematics genius. And while studying the Word of God in its original text, in the Hebrew, he discovered that there were some unusual attributes, mathematically speaking. And I say this to say, and I want to encourage you, if you want to do a little study, just do just type in Ivan Tannen's Mathematics on a Google search, and you can check it out. There's some very interesting things. But long before computers existed, he has over 49,000 pages of his studies and his understanding of the perfection of the Word of God. Now, Matt Jordan, as we were just chatting in the back a little bit ago, he says, and here's the amazing part. We only have a little glimpse of how absolutely magnificent and how perfect God is, let alone God's word and its perfection. But here's an interesting thing associated with this. In mathematics, in this universe, there are two constants. Two constants. Mathematically, that no matter what math you do, Toward those constants, they never change. They're always constant. And that is the value of pi and the value of e. Now, some of us aren't even familiar with the value of e because we're not in advanced math. But in all advanced math, in fact, the majority of any physics, e is resplendent across that. And the value of e. Now, that's like, so what? That's not going to change my day. It's not going to change my week. It's not going to change my faith necessarily. Necessarily. Here's something very interesting. The language of Hebrew, which Genesis was written in, has no numeric numbers like we have our Aramaic numbers 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. The 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet ha are given a numeric value so that the letters represent their numbers. You would be more familiar with Roman numerals, right? X equals 10. L equals 50, M equals 1,000, etc. I equals 1, B equals 5, okay. In the Hebrew, the letters of the alphabet have numeric values. So Ivan Tannen, studying, reading Genesis 1-1, as I read just a moment ago, Bereshith uh, bara Elohim et hashamayim et ha Eretz, discovered, first of all, that there were seven words. And he discovered, looking at that single verse, that there were over 33 different attributes of the number seven. For instance, you take the three nouns, and you add the product of the, uh, each of the nouns, and it's equal to 777, or uh, 111 times seven. That's just interesting. But you take all the words that begin with consonants, and you add up those, the products, becomes divisible by seven. 33 different aspects of the number seven. You think, well, what's the probability of that happening? Well, because he's a mathematician and a, a statistician, he did the statistics, and the statistical analysis would show that the probability of 
33 different aspects of the number seven showing up in one single verse in the original Hebrew language is equal to one chance in 33 trillion. A statistical impossibility. That's just the first verse. He has 49,000 pages of study that demonstrate the same consistency. That's just the number seven. There's other numbers like the number eight, and I won't go into it. I was sharing with these guys back in the back, and they were like, you have to share that stuff. I'm like, no, you have to go do your own research. <laughs> this is just wetting your whistle. But here's the thing. Here's something that's absolutely fascinating when it comes to those two constants, pi and the value of E. When you take the total of the number of letters in Hebrew, in Hebrew the Genesis 1-1, there are 28 letters, and you take... The letters times the product of those letters divided by the number of words, seven, and the multiplied by the product of the words, it equals pi to the fourth decimal point, 3.1416. And you scratch your head and you say, so what? So what? I want you to wrap yourself around that for a moment. It equals the statistical probability of that is like really, really low. But it's not as magnanimous until you go to the verse that Matthew quoted when he opened and welcomed our service, John 1.1. 1, 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word became God. In the Greek, which Greek also has no numeric numbers, 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, like we have our Aramaic numbers, their letters, their 24 letters of their alphabet have numeric values attached to the letters. You apply the same exact formula, the total number of the letters to the times the total product of the letters divided by the number of words times the product of those words equaling pi. You do that in the Greek, in John 1.1, 1, 1, it equals E to the seventh decimal. The only two mathematical constants in the universe and the Word of God displays that. Now, i got to tell you something. Statistically speaking, that is an improbability of greater than one chance in 33 trillion. It's absolutely fascinating. And you'd say, well, Pastor Dave, that's just great. How's that going to change the fact that I have more month at the end of this month than I do money at the end of this month? And it's not. It's not going to fix that. But what I hope it does I hope that it inspires you to be strengthened in your faith and your belief. It's an evidence of the fingerprint of God in all creation and in this written word we call the Bible. That your faith would be strengthened. Listen, you may have trials and tribulations that you're going on right now, and you're wondering, will God be there? The answer is yes, because he's faithful and he's true. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, faithful and true, faithful and true. And the word of God is faithful and true. He will be there. He will deliver because he's the deliverer. He will help in the time of trouble. Because he's the one who helps in the time of trouble. So when your flesh begins to say, where is God? You can say, I know that God is. And he has revealed himself in a constant, consistent, loving manner. Your faith can be built up. some more mathematics. I'm not going to share more with you. So. In the beginning, God. God is. And he loves us. He loves us so much that he has revealed himself to us. He's revealed himself to us in these latter days in the person of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Who says, God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
So this wealth of study, this wealth of information, this wealth of science, this wealth of mathematics, this wealth of awesome stuff is all a picture and a reminder of who is the creator. And this God who has demonstrated his love for us while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is an inspiration for us to hold fast to the faith, to be steadfast in our walk. If you're struggling today in any area of your walk with the Lord, the beauty is we get to come to the communion table. In fact, I'm going to be turning it to Pastor Matt in just a moment. And I just, more than anything, will you convey to the Lord where your heart is struggling? Lord, I struggle in belief. Lord, I struggle in my walk. Lord, I'm discouraged. Lord, I'm down. Maybe you're here today and you're like, hey, hallelujah, I'm doing great. Praise the Lord. You can be an inspiration to those around you. Let's, let's look to the Lord. He is true. He is. God is. And so, those three things I mentioned. The scripture is inspired. There's a lot of information contained within the Word of God. For those who want to dig and dig deep, you will find great nuggets of gold that will inspire your faith. And finally, God is, and we love to praise Him for His faithfulness. I'm going to invite you, as we go into communion this morning, we serve an open communion. If the faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, we just welcome you as brothers and sisters in the Lord. For regular family members here, you know, we just absolutely, on a monthly basis, when we receive communion, it's a time of worship, it's a time of celebration, it's a time of sealing. Maybe you're here today and you say, man, I've been kind of wavering in my faith, and today is a day of beginnings. And I want to just begin afresh with the Lord. Will you make that commitment at the communion table and say, yes, Lord, and reestablish by making a public declaration, I am a follower of Christ. God will meet us where we are, and he will encourage us and build us up in our most holy faith. So we serve that open communion, and I'm going to ask that as we will be receiving communion in a few moments, Matt will have us stand. We'll make our way to the center aisles. The eldership will be up here to serve us. We'll make our way down these center aisles, receive, and then we'll move to the out. There'll be four of us, so kind of the center section can move to the middle group and the ones on the outside, kind of the outside, but just we'll be receiving that in a moment. And will you hold those emblems until we can pray and all receive those together? Pastor Matt, will you come and lead us in communion? Good stuff from the book of Genesis this morning. Paul, when uh, he was writing his letter to the church in Corinth, he says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24. He said, And when they had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after the same manner, he took up the cup, and when he had drank of it, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this also as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you show the world the Lord's death until he comes. The same time Paul was writing this letter to the church in Corinth, there was an early church document that was being circulated throughout the known world, and it was a document called the Didache. Uh, it is the teaching of the 12 uh, disciples. Historians and, and theologians both uh, agree that this is probably a document that was written by the disciples in the upper room as the church was beginning to expand. And this, this book, you can read it. It's great. Uh, it breaks down the early church's theology and the early church's doctrine. And it, uh, it, it points to communion, and, and it prescribes a way in which the church is to partake in communion as they are to do this in remembrance of the Lord. Thank you, brother. And I thought it would be really cool this morning we took a look at the way the first churches did it in the, in the first century and the way they prayed for the communion. And so I'm going to invite uh, the congregation, begin to make your way down to the elders uh, and, and, and take the elements. And when you take them back to your seat, we're going to spend some time in worship. And then I'm going to have two of our interns come up here and, and we're going to pray for these things the way the early church prayed for them. And we're going to receive them the way the early church received them.
church services, the bishop would get up after the word was shared and he would say, now concerning the broken bread, and then he would pray this way. We thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. You be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. But let no one eat or drink of the Eucharist unless they have been baptized into the name of the Lord. For concerning this also the Lord has said, give not that which is holy to the dogs. Let's take the bread together. So concerning the cup, we pray this way. We thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. Let's drink. And in closing, they would pray this way. We thank you, Holy Father, for your name, which you did cause to tabernacle with us in our hearts, and for the knowledge and the faith and immortality which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be glory forever. You, Master Almighty, you did create all things for your name's sake, and you gave food to drink and for men to enjoy them, that they might give thanks to you. But to us you have freely given spiritual food and spiritual drink and life eternal through your servant. Before all things, we thank you that you are mighty. To you be the glory forever and ever. Remember your church, O Lord, to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love and gather it from the four winds, sanctified for your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come and let the world pass away. Hosanna to the Son of God, the Son of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. And if anyone is not so holy, let him repent. Maranatha, amen. God, we worship you and we thank you. And we remember your shed blood and your broken body for us. God, may we be a representation of you to this world. God, go with us, bless us, and in all things, we declare, Maranatha, amen, amen. Go in the grace and knowledge of Jesus this morning.